So uh, once again, we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. This is, uh, we are running two series at the same time, coterminously. So one of them is uh, what we're calling the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel. And we are on the 106th lesson in that series. And we are on the element seven out of the eight elements. And uh, if you, there are some back outlines uh, that would that would tell you what all the eight elements are. And of course, all of them are available on podcast because we're following iTunes format. If you go under gcfdayton.org is our website and go to podcast. Uh, most of the stuff John does is, is under the last category as you scroll down called Sermon of the Week and mine are on different categories, but th- these are on um, one that's just called Sunday Bible Study, I believe, right? Sunday Bible Study. And because of the iTunes format, the most recent message is first. So if you want to go back and say listen to the, the first series that John did on Finding Christ in the Old Testament, you have to scroll all the way back on Sermon of the Week to, to the very beginning. And that's a very good series to listen to, by the way. So this series is 106 parts, and we did... Uh, there's another place that we did like a mini version of this series that was only 12 parts. Um, this will probably end up at around 150 parts by the time we're done. And uh, we'll, we'll see what that looks like when we get, get there. So if you look down on Roman numeral 2, number A, we have uh, what we call the first five steps of entering Christ's kingdom. If you study the, if you kind of get the concept that comes out of Exodus 20, uh, Hebrews 8, 5, uh, Acts 7 is mentioned, the, the idea that the body of Christ, the church, is supposed to follow patterns. The gospel itself is a pattern. Christ himself is our model or pattern. Once you begin to, to understand, instead of isolated proof text for our various disjointed ideas, that there's some systematic, cohesive, major themes and patterns in the Bible, and you begin to look for major themes, and you begin to look for patterns, one of the things you'll see is that in the New Testament pattern, when people came to Christ, they took these five steps at the beginning of their Christian life. Most American Christians have experienced two of these five. Uh, Some have experienced maybe three of these five. Very few have uh, experienced all five of these five. And these, in the New Testament times, these were things you did the first week you were a Christian, uh, but of course you received a very different gospel. A gospel of grace, not moralizing. A gospel of the kingdom, not individualistic salvation, but God is looking for a people for his own possession that live a corporate way of life together and so forth. All kinds of issues on the pattern. So uh, these, those five steps are listed under Roman numeral 2, uh, capital letter A, subpoint 2. The, uh, all five of those are listed. And the third one is called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so at the same time as we're doing the chapter 7, or element 7, I should say, of the eight essential elements, we're doing a new series on baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this is chapter 13a of that series, just to orient ourselves where we are. Now, Roman numeral 2, 
Capital letter B gives you what we covered the last five weeks. We went through the five examples of where the New Testament kind of zooms in on a group of people coming to Christ and gives us a fair amount of detail on their coming to Christ. It's the only place that the scriptures do that. And uh, they happen to be in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19. And we looked at each of those for a full week. And today we're going to move on to something that's going to take us two Sundays that I would call uh, God's promise for every believer. The Bible is full of a concept that we'll look at next week of God's promises from the beginning to the end. And we're going to put it in context next week of the fact that there are eight essential elements in all biblical content, in all biblical covenants. And one of the essential elements in all biblical covenants is that God has promises and that are unconditional and conditions that are conditional, as well as things that are by grace and unconditional and so forth. And those covenants are sealed with vows, and they're sealed with ceremonies and ceremonies of celebration, ceremonies of enactment, and ceremonies of reinforcement. Uh, in the Christian life, water baptism is, serves as a ceremony of, an, of entrance into the kingdom of God. The Lord's Supper uh, serves as a ceremony of renewal of the covenant. And that's why there were no Christians throughout the centuries who did not practice weekly communion until relatively modern times. That's a, that's a modernist adaptation uh, to the scriptures when, when, when churches celebrate communion monthly, quarterly, or annually. No Christians did that for the first 1,900 years because it was part of the Lord's Day celebration and, and something that we did on the first day of the week to celebrate the coming in Christ of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and the new kingdom. And it was a covenant ceremony that we renew the covenant weekly together, remembering his death, burial, and resurrection as he instructed us to do. It's not our right to change these things. So... Um, you know, in marriage, one of the things any marriage counselor knows to do is ask, how is your love life together? Because you enter into a covenant of marriage with a ceremony of enactment called a wedding. And there are vows and celebrations and a big dinner and wine. And you invite all the Christians you know and that you're close to anyway and so forth that you're going to walk in covenant with and, and, and so forth. And uh, uh, you have this, these eight aspects of covenant are done at, at your wedding day. But covenants have ceremonies of renewal, and intimacy in marriage is a ceremony of renewing the covenant. That's why it's so damaging to, to be involved in any kind of intimacy outside of marriage. Because it's, it's a covenant thing, and it's protected by covenants. And God will, God promises quite faithfully in his word that all fornicators and adulterers he will judge. That's one of his great promises you can count on. You know, every promise in the book is mine. Every jot, every tittle, every lie. You can know that if you partake in, uh, in sexual intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage, you'll get the great reward of called sanctions. It's one of the eight aspects of all covenants is there are sanctions 
and those won't be sanctions you really want to deal with. So, along that line, Roman numeral three, Jesus on what uh, is known as Ascension Thursday. Most churches don't celebrate Ascension Thursday because there's so many uh, Christological celebrations on the calendar that most Christians uh, celebrate the Ascension on what's called Ascension Sunday, which is actually three days after Christ ascended. And uh, we celebrated that, uh, I don't know, six weeks ago or something like that. I'd have to go back and count. Um, In both Luke chapter 24 and, and Acts chapter 1, Luke gives us two accounts of what Jesus said on Ascension Thursday to his disciples just before he ascended. And what he told them to do was to not go out and do their ministry and not start their their mission of proclamation of the kingdom of God until they received power from the Holy Spirit and until they received what was called the promise of the Father. And he told them that when they received the promise of the Father, they would, with the promise of the Father, receive dunamis, is the Greek word, which we get dynamic and dynamite and dynamo from. They would receive a kind of power that would enable them not just to witness, but to be becoming witnesses. If you look at the Greek when he says in Acts 1.8, he says, you shall be my witnesses. The Greek means you will always be becoming, by the Holy Spirit, you are going to be, be, becoming. More and more, you are going to become a people of witness. Empowered by the Holy Spirit who bears witness. In all through the scriptures, there are always two that bear witness to the ascended Christ, both the testimony of the saints and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's why when you're witnessing, uh, you can tell what God's done in your life and what you know. You can attest to the facts that, of the resurrection and the historical validity of that and so forth. But it will be the Holy Spirit that bears witness to those who are called and those who are chosen and those who are being drawn into the kingdom. The Holy Spirit will actually do the work. It's amazing that there are Christians who believe in God's providence and sovereignty and election who are evangelistically inactive because we're commanded to proclaim the kingdom and we know there will be fruit because as Acts is a verse we're going to deal with today, all those who are appointed to eternal life believed. God will do the work. And it's not up to you like, oh, no, my technique wasn't that great, (laughs) you know. Uh, And boy, that person got convicted and and drawn into the kingdom and so forth. I must have done a really good job. No, probably not. (laughs) You know, know, uh, hopefully you were faithful to the best you knew how to do it, as we all try to be. But uh, you can plant and water, but only God can cause the growth. So in Luke 24, uh, Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you're to stay in the city till you're clothed with that power. Acts 1, he repeats this. He says, But wait for for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, If you take the word seriously, the word for always is a redefinition of what he just said. You know, I'm very thankful 
for Logan Carr's ministry and my wife's and my life. Four, he comes over and helps us with dishes two and three times a week, which uh, my wife greatly appreciates. That's why she loves the, you know, you'll often find Logan and Catherine watching a baseball game or, or talking about the, some concept theologically or whatever, because four, Logan has come over and helped with the dishes. Uh, you know, uh, that's just a, a way of restating what you already stated, right? So uh, Jesus says that you'll, for you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now is a definition of what he means by waiting for receiving the promise of the Father. So what I hope we're going to deal with next week, hopefully you'll see, is that there is a whole line of covenant promises uh, that start in Genesis 1. They include, of course, the proto-evangel in Genesis 3.15, where the first promise of the gospel, that God would put enmity between the serpent and his seed and the woman and her seed, and the woman's seed, namely Christ, would crush the serpent on the head, and the serpent would bruise Christ on the heel, speaking of the crucifixion, and so forth. And all through, you know, when God calls Abraham, he's not, as you hear in evangelical churches today, some idol-worshiping pagan that God calls He's from the, he's from the uh, Seth line through, through Melchizedek, Lamech, Noah, all these kind of people. He's one of the Yahweh followers in the earth. And his father uh, had been called of God and he had started out on a journey to a land of promise. And his father had gotten as far as Ur of the Chaldees and his father died. And Abraham was called to keep walking with God, with his father's God. And his servants and so forth were his church. They weren't just like people he paid. These were people who saw that his God was the true, the true God, and his worship was the true worship. And they were covenant people in the earth, and they said, we want to be part of the people of God, and we're going to follow Abraham the blessed. That's what's so significant about Lot's mistake. When as God enriched and blessed Abraham, Lot's, uh, his nephew's wealth and, and, and uh, flocks and everything grew. And Lot's, Lot's followers said, hey, let's break off and start a new church. We, I don't really like this Abraham guy's church anymore. They're eating our pasture land and so forth. And they're not doing baptisms, right? Or, no, <laughs> just modernizing a little for you. And, uh, and so... It, the scripture makes it very clear that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the valleys that Sodom and Gomorrah were in and looked at their wealth and their prosperity and chose them over the blessings of being Abraham's servant. And he said, live in Dayton just to be a part of this vision? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> you know, It's much cooler in Florida. Well, not cooler, but it's more cool. Uh, or whatever, and uh, and Lot made a foolish, foolish mistake because he didn't understand the way God works covenantally uh, through through his patriarchs and so forth. And he should have said he should have rebuked his followers and said, "We are going to serve Abraham's calling." And in the end, he was greatly humiliated. So. The Bible thinks quite differently than we think about all these things, is all I'm trying to illustrate by that. 
And the promise of the Father goes all through the scriptures. When God first spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he said to follow him and so forth, and that in Abraham shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What's amazing is that Israel was judged over and over and over again for their hatred of the nations around them, even though it's clear all through from the very first words to Abraham on that they were to mediate the law of God, the truths of God, the presence of God, the covenants of God to the, in, to, in a mission of mercy to the nations around them, and they closed their heart to the missions around them. Often we do that today, right? And so um, that was the reason Israel was constantly judged by the Father. And that's why when Jesus finally stands over Jerusalem, he says, I'm done with it. I've sent you one prophet after another prophet. You killed one, you stoned another, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I've wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers its chicks, but you would not have it. And he says, behold, your kingdom, your temple is left to you desolate. Two chapters earlier, he had said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Now he disowns it and it's no longer his house. People think that the... You know, the reason Jesus was upset at the money changers was that they, you know, like, oh, my God, they had a bookstore in the back of the church, <laughs> or they were selling coffee or something. They were doing it in the court of the Gentiles because they saw no purpose to the court of the Gentiles, which was the place where they were supposed to bring the, court, the presence of God out of the Holy of Holies and into the Gentile world around them. And they had said, there's no use for that, so let's just sell stuff there. That's what he was upset about when he said, my house is to be a house of prayer for just Israel? No, all the nations. This place, this house of the court of the Gentiles is supposed to be a place of prayer to all the nations and the launching point of ministry to all the nations. And time and time and time again, you've closed your heart to that mission. So Jesus is now telling them the opposite I'm going to send you the promise of the Father, and that promise is going to empower you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, to, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. And the covenants of God are going to be proclaimed to all the world, and everyone is going to be invited to be a member of God's family. We're going to go to the highways and the byways and, and try to fill up the wedding hall. It's like, you know, we just had a wedding a few weeks back. And it's like, you know, like, let's just go out to the parking lot and start inviting random people to come in because it's not full enough yet, right? So uh, that promise is the heartbeat of the whole Bible. And Israel was so blind to it that even Peter, after growing up in Galilee, which means he would have memorized all those promises as a boy, he would have had the Pentateuch memorized by age 12 and around 2,000 other Old Testament scriptures. He was a follower of John the Baptist in John 1. Then he becomes a follower of Christ 
he's with Jesus three and a half years who's constantly making statements about the kingdom being for all the people. That's why they were so mad at him after his first sermon in Luke 4. And yet, uh, and then he was there in Acts 1 when Jesus told them that the, the spirit would come upon them and the power would be for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But he still thinks it's just going to be the Jews that are spread throughout the uttermost parts of the earth in the synagogues. In Acts 10, until the vision he saw from the Holy Spirit helps him see what the Scripture had been saying all along. The Holy Spirit will never show you something that's not scriptural, but he will often show you something contrary to your previous wrong understandings of Scripture. You should be having that kind of experience with the Scriptures almost every day. You should be like, you should have like a little dent in your forehead because you're constantly going like, oh my gosh, I could have had a V8. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you won't probably need to get a hard hat if you're going to like read the Bible <laughs> so you don't hurt yourself. But, uh, oh, well, just got the red carpet, which we'll be changing. <laughs> Not my shirt. So, uh, so, uh, we'll look next week more about this thing about the promise of the Father. This week, I really want to focus in for the remainder of the time on who um, are the followers or believers that get this promise of the Father, and what are their merits or their qualifications or their credentials. God gave you the Holy Spirit because you are a really righteous dude? Maybe not. Well, let's examine that more closely. And... Uh, <laughs> Some of you'd laugh because I, I know. I, I, never mind. God knows. You know. We all know. We all know who we were, right? But such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were justified. Uh, then we're going to talk about who is included in every believer or follower and who's not included. Who's eligible to receive the promise of the Father and who's not? And then next week, we're going to look at what is the nature of the promise of the Father and what does that include, can include. And I am just gave enough foreshadowing to say all the promises of God, every one of them flows into Pentecost for every believer. It's the ultimate culmination of everything God has done historically and redemptively. That's why the, there are demons, there is a Satan, there is a culture of unbelief that came on the West after the Enlightenment that fights this thing called being baptized in the Holy Spirit tooth and nail because Satan does not want you to have the power. Because the power is the ultimate promise of God for every believer. And it's the ultimate equipping to do the work of God. And if you, and as we're going to hopefully saw, started to see with the last five weeks with the pattern, if you got it all at conversion, let's see it all. Like if you go back to the beginning teachings in, of this message and you looked at uh, chapter 2, uh, what are the ministries of the Holy Spirit? Chapter three, 3, what are the activities of the Holy Spirit? And, and then we broke that down into A, B, and C, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and after the Spirit. If the, whole, the Holy Spirit, like Jesus, doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13 says that about G Jesus. But does the Father change? Does the Holy Spirit change? He's the eternal, uh, 
ontological God, right? He doesn't change. And therefore, he doesn't behave differently in the earth at different seasons and dispensations, like some modern nonsense. He didn't die with the apostles, nor was he, nor was he withdrawn from the church. The problem is with us, not with the Lord's purposes. Okay, so who are some of the followers and what are their merits? Well, because they attend church all the time and they help little old ladies across the street and they tithe a lot. John 6.44 says, no one. Now, here's one of the great deceptions that you have to wrestle with God about and get it out of your heart. Almost everyone struggles with, and listen to these words, everyone struggles with the no one or the anyone phrases. So when it says that he gives gifts to everyone, you struggle with, but not me, right? Like, were some exceptions. One of the, when the first verse I ask anyone I disciple to memorize is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you but what is common to man. We're all the same. And there's lots of anyone and everyone and no one verses in the Bible. And I think it's a secret of understanding God's heart. Whenever you see no one or everyone or anyone, <laughs> stop. Like, ask God to put something in your spirit that goes, man, 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 man. Anyone includes me. And it includes my kids. So many Christians struggle with, with faith for their kids when God has promised faithfulness to their kids to a thousand generations. That's, if you want to see God move in your kids, start with that. Because God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and the problem is not with him. Ever. So Jesus says, no one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if Logan and John Luke do a really good presentation with the four principles of spiritual growth or something. <laughs> uh, see, God's confirming the word. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. And you're not, you're part of no one. You didn't come because, well, I was, I've always wanted to find truth and I was... You know, I, I, you talk to people all the time that t tell you, like, the, one of the worst things I ever heard, I almost died. There, you know, <laughs> there was a, John was standing, John Weiss was standing up here, and there was a brother who came up to him, and he looked John in the eye very seriously and said, you know, I have a really good heart. And I went, oh! <laughs> like, I, I was like, just take me home right now. <laughs> Are you kidding me? The heart of man is desperately wicked above all else. And, and let me tell you, that I knew that guy well enough to know that was true. But uh, <laughs> so no one can come lest the Father draws him. And guess what? One of the great joys of being a Christian, I, I am so glad. Like I really, I, when I was uh, being discipled in the Lord, 
I really wanted to go back to my hometown in Cleveland and start a church, and God sent me to Dayton anyway, instead. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've never got to lead hardly any of my old friends to Christ, but I got to lead hundreds of people who were like them. Right? So, um, and the truth of the matter is, is that God likes to lead all kinds of people to Christ that are just completely wacky and weird and different and, and don't fit any molds. You know, it's what I love about our church is like, we're, like you guys are so weird. <laughs> and you have a pastor that fits it. <laughs> you know, uh, you know um, and that's how it should be. No one, no, no one is the likely candidate. It's God's choice. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you didn't choose me. We love to stand up and go, I've been seeking for truth all my life. And last week I went forward and received Keith Green at the Jesus concert. And I'm, now I'm a Christian. And You know, nonsense. You were running from God all your life. <laughs> and he overruled that. And until you see that, you'll make very little progress in grace in the gospel. You're not better than any alcoholic, wino, adulterer, prostitute, drug addict, car thief, or any of the other good members of our church. <laughs> now, I was with a Christian counselor man, and he's like telling me, oh, I drank a beer in college. Oh, yeah, I drank a beer in first grade, but what, who cared? <laughs> you know, like, what does that matter? Uh, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. If you, you know, fruit bearing starts in Genesis 1. Every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. You know how you bear fruit? When you have the actual life of the grace gospel in your spirit and heart, you will bear fruit. You know, there's a thing that happens to healthy people in the physical, in the natural, that you have to do certain behaviors not to multiply once you reach puberty. It's called abstinence until marriage, right? And actually, in the things of God, not multiplying after you reach puberty is kind of, is just means you're dead there's a problem you need to probably see like uh you know people go to see like what do they call it fertility doctors or something if you're if you're not starting to make disciples and and bear fruit and so forth go see doctor fertility doctor jesus because he wants you to bear fruit and whatever is in you you will multiply it's, this, it's a principle of life that whatever you have in your heart, you'll evangelize other people too. I can remember in 10th grade, I spent the whole year trying to, trying to convince Mary Beth Ammon, who sat behind me in English class, why she should discover the wonders of smoking weed. <laughs> and like when my brothers finally got converted to smoking weed, I was like, you know, like I was so happy. 
Like, I've, these guys, I finally got them to start smoking weed. It took me like eight years, you know, because you will lead people into whatever you're into. Everyone does. And you'll want to be around people who do whatever you're into. If you love to worship the Lord, you'll, be, you'll want to be around people who love to worship the Lord. And you'll be like, hey, come worship the Lord with us. <laughs> but I just made your, your tacos at Taco Bell. That's okay. Come on. <laughs> you know. You'll love worshiping the Lord. Trust me. <laughs> Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we better than they? This, I'm really trying to hit this for a particular reason. Many evangelicals still have this tinge of self-righteousness. I'm telling you that it's death. It's, it's utter, it means you don't get the gospel. And you'll find that many charismatics and Pentecostals kind of have a doctrine of that when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you've arrived somewhere. That is baloney. It's a gift that God gives us to grow. And, you know, like it's, you know, like it's about to be prideful that I'm in Christ or that I got baptized in the Holy Spirit is about as wise as being prideful because I have so many good Bibles. You know, I have nine really nice Bibles. You know? <laughs> so what? I, that's because my parents gave them to me. <laughs> what do I have that I didn't receive? You know, so... Um, what then? Are we better than they? Think about this. Do you have people that in your heart, when you encounter them, uh, you know, inner city people, older people, poor people, rich people, white people, black people, do you have people that in your heart you think you're better than they are? Do you? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Hopefully you, can, you qualify for that, right? As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not even kids who grew up in Christian school and never stole any cars or did any drugs. Or I was righteous from my youth up. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. You didn't seek for God. He came seeking for you. And you were trying to avoid that encounter. <laughs> I remember the first time I sat near a really on fire Christian in high school. I made up my mind I was never going to sit near that guy again. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I wouldn't want to become a Christian. That would ruin everything. <laughs> All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. That's what the Bible has to say about us outside of Christ. You become useless. Say that to one another. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, there's none who does good. No, no, not anyone. No, not one. All the ones, everyone, any ones, that would be you. Oh, great Christian who grew up in a Christian school and home and never stole a car or whatever. I never got caught for stealing a car. Uh, <laughs> does that count? No, not really. Um, Flip over, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. That's how the Bible describes your heart. Oh, I grew up in this wonderful Christian family, and we were Christians all of my life. Really? 
God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face or the person or the heart of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of us. I wish I had time to develop this. Sometimes study vessels in the Bible, but there's a lot of teaching about vessels and pottery and so forth. And there was all kinds of uses. And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that I buffet my body unless I become disqualified, the Greek there actually means unless I become a cracked vessel, unfit for the master's use. Because they would take a vessel that cracked and they would repair it and then they would use it for like the spittoon or the uh, chamber pot uh, or for, you know, for carrying the feces and the urine and so forth. And what Paul is saying is, there are vessels in the house for honorable use, and there are vessels for dishonorable use. You know, you don't take out the trash in your mother's fine china, usually. <laughs> you know, unless you want to get in big trouble. But, uh, um, and what this is all about is saying, like, God took the worst kind of vessel and made it into a new vessel that could carry his treasures and could be the special vessel that we only bring out for the really special occasions. That's what it means to have been brought into Christ. To grow from the vessel used for urination and feces and, and garbage removal to being the honored vessel used for the best dinners and, and, the, and so forth. That's what God did for you by bringing you to Christ. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about vessels and potters and clay and all that goes all through the Bible. Romans 3, uh, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Manifested. Je remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to put it into force. Because the righteousness of, of the law was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ being for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We tend to think of that nowadays because we've redefined sin as drinking beer and, and wearing, not wearing certain kinds of clothing and makeup and, and other leaves of the tree issues. We, treat, we miss the whole root of the tree. But what this is talking about is not all of us have a few little sins, and so I need to pray the sinner's prayer because I made a few mistakes and I probably need just a little help. You know, uh, I don't know where John Gray is this morning. He's usually here, but this John doesn't, I'm, he's one of several guys I've asked permission to share his story and his testimony. When I first started working with John Gray, he saw himself as basically good in and of himself, and I've been a good in, Christian all my life, and I said, let's start with Romans. You've got, you've got to have God help you see the depth of your sin if you're going to understand the greatness of his grace. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The first thing God does to, to help you is show you what a miserable, blind, wretched, naked, wrongly motivated, bad attitudes, lost cause you are. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> As Ray always says, cheer up, you're much worse off than you think. Or <laughs> you know, it, really you are.
And then he goes on to talk about a gift by his grace and so forth, so that he could demonstrate his righteousness by being the just and the justifier. So that's really important. Acts 13.48b says, So all those who are appointed to eternal life believed. You're in Christ despite yourself. And when you begin to see that, then it makes sense that all the provisions, all the inheritance, deliverance, baptism in the Spirit, revelation, all that goes along with being a mature, fruitful disciple of, of Christ, he came to give it all to you. And it's not like, oh, he'll give more to me if I stay, if I stay more faithful. You know, I've, I always have talks with young Christians, uh, well, I got baptized in the Spirit, and then I really started messing up. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I got all on fire for the Lord, and that's when I started committing my worst sins. Yep, been there. <laughs> I sinned more after I was a Christian because I was our, only 17 when I became a Christian. I've had a lot more time since then. And sad to say, hopefully you won't quit our church if you hear this, there are <laughs> some areas that I sinned a lot more after I was a Christian because God put a lot more confidence in my spirit and heart about who I was with sports, unfortunately with women, and lots of other things, and I didn't have the sanctification to handle that new confidence. So it's like... I didn't, have, I didn't have enough self-confidence to do some of the worst sins <laughs> until after the Lord started helping me. Because, <laughs> you know, we have this evangelical idea, oh, I was a terrible sinner, then I received Christ, and I've been the really godly ever since. I'm your pastor, I know better. <laughs> I, I mean, I never met any Christians like that. Uh, religious self-righteousness is more sick than anything. Um, I'm almost out of time, but I'm going to... Who's included in this every believer? Who's not included? Uh, let's at least do Acts 2 here, and maybe we'll have to do three weeks on this subject. Um, so this could be a foreshadowing of next week. At the, uh, if you get a chance, listen to John's very first sermon. Go all the way back to the beginning of the podcast because John opens up Acts 2 like no one else I've ever heard. What Peter is actually saying in his day of Pentecost sermon. But he's basically proving, and yet that's what one of those many examples of why you have to know the culture and the context and so forth to really understand the passage. But if you go back, what, he's, what Peter is proving is that all Jews in the days of Jesus were expecting Messiah to come, or Christos in the Greek, and they were expecting Emmanuel, God with us, to come. Most did not expect that to be the same person, and most did not expect, they thought he was going to do a geopolitical kingdom, like David's, and throw the Romans out and restore Israel. They didn't understand the depth of their spiritual enemies or the kinds of bondages and weaknesses and so forth. And so even though if this was the hope of every fundamentalist uh, Israelite person, when God himself was in their midst, they killed him. I honestly believe that, that Jesus would be, would be not welcome at most of our churches today. Most of our Bible-believing churches. 
and he might even be in danger, <laughs> let alone not welcome. Um, so after this, you know, the, so the whole sermon opens their eyes to it, and he says, therefore let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made it clear, is what the, word, the Greek word there means, made it clear that Jesus is both the Lord that you are waiting for, Emmanuel, God with us, and he's Christos, Mashiach, that you are waiting for. And uh, you killed them. You didn't buy the CDs or the audios. or and You killed them. That's why when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. This was not some little, oh my God, I did steal bubblegum when I was in third grade. You know? I killed God. God's very purposes were in my midst, and I hated him so much that I had to see, make sure he was eliminated. And I go to synagogue and memorize scripture and, and worship and pray with the believers every week. And when God himself was right in my midst, I couldn't recognize him because of my wrong theological paradigms and my and all the evil things that were actually in my self-righteous heart. So they're like, uh-oh, we're, what, what shall we do? Don't, I never pray the sinner's prayer with people until they're really ready to say, what shall we do? In other words, I say, like, God's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Sign this in blood, and you get to read it later. <laughs> like you need to accept everything God says even though you're not going to understand very much for a while <laughs> right not like well do I have to give up oatmeal <laughs> or, you know, I love when people go do I have to give up whatever their favorite little sin is do I have to give up beer or do I have to give up stealing cars or or my girlfriend, or whatever. Yes! <laughs> you have to give up your whole life. <laughs> Sign up, hand over your house, your car, your wife, your kids. God, all of its idols in your heart, and God wants to free you from every idol of your heart. And you're, he wants to, you're bound up by all kinds of idols that are even your very kids and your jobs, and, and everything about you is full of idolatry. And God wants to kill it. And I love you. So Peter says three things. Repent. So if you go all through the New Testament and you look at all the things, if you remember we did uh, element five, or I'm sorry, element six was receiving Jesus Christ. We did 24 weeks on that. And one of the things you'll see is that trusting and following and repentance uh, are two of the key elements of what it means to receive Jesus Christ. But... um, you know, there's some theological debate which happens first, but repentance is always listed first. And repentance is very seldom preached. Most people kind of, when they pray the sinner's prayer, like pray it like St. Augustine said, like, Lord, deliver me from lust, but not just yet. <laughs> Come into my life and set me free from my sins, but could you kind of wait till I get, I'm, you know, 
I honestly, I was so wicked and ungodly of a person that when Christ came first in my life, I actually would argue with God for a while, like, couldn't you have waited till I was a little older and got done partying and having fun more and bottomed out a little bit more? <laughs> like, why'd you have to bother me now? Because <laughs> uh, I wasn't very sanctified in my heart, was I? All right, so he goes on to say, repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's water baptism. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he defines it again as the promise with the gift of the Holy Spirit as the apostles received it, as the Cornelius and the Gentiles received it, as the people in Ephesus received him. That promise is for you and your children, which is Bible speak that it's not for a particular time period. It's amazing the doctrine of cessationism that God stopped doing these things. The Bible clear makes it clear in hundreds of places that he did not and does not and will not. There aren't different dispensations and different economies. There's the, there's the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. And as a child of God, getting filled with the power of the Holy Spirit the same way the 120 in the upper room and Cornelius and his household did is your provision deliverance and baptism in the Spirit, all these things are part of the children's bread. That is to say, your inheritance. We'll look at that more next week. Uh, it's, it's for your, you and your children. It's not any particular one generation. You know, it's for David and his seed, which was Christ. It's for Abraham's seed, which is Christ. And it's for everyone who's in Christ. Uh, and it's for all who are far off. It's not limited to the Roman Empire or the Middle East. It's for the entire world. And to just in case you're not clear, he concludes it by saying, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. He'll stop giving the promise in the way which clearly goes back to what Jesus said in Acts 1, for you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. God will stop doing it that way when God starts, stops calling people to himself. It's for as many as the Lord our God will, will call to himself. Have you been called to the Lord? Then, then all of the blessings and powers and provisions and covenants of God are all for you. Amen.